Hi, and welcome to Stained Glass Stories. My name is Austin Nappy, and we're back here with another episode. This week, we're going to be telling the faith story of a renowned Catholic speaker, Christopher West. Matt Ziegler, our co-host, and Joe, our cameraman, will be sitting down with him to talk about his time at the Theology of the Body Institute, an institute that he founded. Let's go to Matt now with this conversation. On this week of uh, Stained Glass Stories, we welcome Christopher West. Christopher, thanks for coming on. Matt, it's a great pleasure to be with you and your audience there at Catholic U. So, Christopher, before we you know get started, can you tell us about yourself? You know, your family life, what you do. Sure. Well, I married a CUA grad. Oh wow. Yeah, she graduated from Catholic U in '94, and we married in '95. Her her maiden name was Wendy Weidman. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Wow. We have. Five awesome kids from age 23 down to age 12. And we knew when we got married 25 years ago that we were going to have a, a unique call on our lives. I wasn't just going to be working a nine-to-five job in the business world or something. I, I knew I had a mission, and that was to spread John Paul II's theology of the body far and wide to, to anybody who would listen. And that's taken me around the world. Uh, I founded a theological institute to help do that work. And I think I have the greatest job in the world, Matt. I get to tell hungry people where to find good food. <laughs> we, we live in confusing times. We live in very sexually perverse times, sexually deranged times. One could even say we don't even know the meaning of male and female anymore. We, we kind of started out in the sexual revolution idolizing sex. But see, here's the thing, Matt. You will eventually despise whatever you idolize, because you cannot realize what you really desire in the idol, right? And here's what I learned from John Paul II that changed my life. The creation of the human being as male and female, and the call of the two to become one flesh, is a great icon that's meant to point us to heavenly, beautiful, blissful realities, but we've turned the icon into an idol in the modern world, and then the idol couldn't deliver what we wanted it to, to deliver, and so then we start to hate it. And that's why we're in this culture that we're in today right now that is really hating masculinity and femininity and trying to erase it. For such a time as this, Matt, have we been given St. John Paul II's theology of the body. It is a bright light shining in a dark place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do want to make, uh, you know, the disclaimer that, you know, theology of the body, although we're looking at chastity and purity through the lens of theology of the body today, it encompasses, you know, you can look at your entire faith life through the lens of theology of the body. So, you know, Matt, chastity. I'm so glad you're saying that because usually I'm the one who has to explain that to the host. <laughs> the, the fact that you already get that, this is so important here on the quote from Mikhail Waldstein. He's one of the great scholars out there doing work on John Paul's teaching, and he and I are good friends. And, and he said that the theology of the body is the lens that John Paul II gave us to understand the whole catechism, right? It's not just about sex and, and married love. It's not just about chastity. It's about who is God and who are we and why are we here and how do we live and what is our ultimate destiny? See, theology of the body is what Christianity is if you believe in Christmas, if you believe that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh, 
you believe that your body is not just biological, it's theological. It tells a divine story. That's what sex is all about. How do we speak the truth with our bodies, the truth that sets us free to love the way we were created to love, to be loved the way we're created to be loved? That's what we're all looking for, and that's what this is all about. You know, theology of the body is, is kind of a, I wouldn't say a new idea to me, but it, it's something that I haven't fully dived into, into its depths until, you know, I, I hear people going to the Institute, going to and taking courses on theology of the body, you know, like JT Parker, who goes to CUA this year, and my brother, Jack. Yes. And it seems just like eye-opening is the word that they describe. Like once you figure out how to see your, your faith and your life through the theology of the body, your eyes are just like opened. Just, you know, on the road to Emmaus when the, the disciples were walking with Christ. And that's a great way. Bystander. That's a great story to connect it to, Matt, because what did they come to see? They came to see the revelation of the divine reality through the breaking of the bread. Well, what does that mean? For us as Catholics, we know immediately that's the Eucharist. Well, what is the Eucharist? Think about it. I'm going to I'm going to rewind here a little bit because we have to, to, to understand our faith and to understand why theology of the body is so eye opening. We have to understand what we mean by sacramentality. Mm-hmm. It's a big word. You know, we maybe don't really know what it means. We've heard of the seven sacraments. But what is sacramentality? Sacramentality is the way the physical world reveals the spiritual world. We could put it this way. It's how small b beauty, the beautiful things of creation, reveal capital B beauty, God, right? Well, at the pinnacle of the beauty of the created world is the human body. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he said, be fertile and multiply. At the pinnacle of the created order is the naked body made in the image and likeness of God revealing a divine mystery. Before sin came into the world, Scripture tells us that the man and the woman were naked and felt no shame. Why? John Paul II tells us that the reason they saw one another naked without shame is because they saw their bodies sacramentally. What does that mean? They saw their bodies as the revelation of spiritual and divine mysteries. We could put it this way, Matt. They looked at their bodies not as something, but as someone. I, I'll ask women in particular. I, I do these events around the world, and I've probably asked hundreds of thousands of women this question. I'll say, do you prefer to be looked at, or do you prefer to be seen? What do you think they say, Matt? That they would like to be seen. They would like to be seen. So what is the difference? Let me ask you. I know this is, you know, an interview and you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm going <laughs> to reverse interview here. Matt, what is the difference between looking at a woman and seeing her? That's such a good question. I think for the difference is that when you look at a woman, you're you're only seeing I, I guess I shouldn't use the word seeing, but you're you're looking exteriorly. Yes, yes, good yes, good point. Yep, you're on it. Yeah, and that's that's almost your focus is the exterior of the woman. But when right. you see someone, you know, you look at their entire being. You look at them physically, Ooh. yes, but you also look at who they are as a person, which is a daughter of Christ. Boom, boom. Okay, so this is this is the critical distinction between 
treating another person as something or treating another person as someone. Because when you're only looking, you see something. And things, these are all terms I'm getting from JP2 here. Things are dispensable, replaceable, and repeatable. But persons are indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Think about it. When, when your toaster breaks, you, you throw it away, right? Yeah. It's dispensable. You replace it. It's replaceable. It's repeatable. There are a hundred million of the very same model of toaster at the Amazon warehouse, right? Yeah. But the person, the person is indispensable. Matt, there's no other you. You're unrepeatable. To, to throw, if somebody treats you as a thing and uses you and then throws you away, dispenses with you, it hurts because you're meant to be loved. And love is not so much the opposite of hatred, right? Mm-hmm. The opposite of love, John Paul II says, the opposite of love is to use another person as something, to dis- to use and then discard, to treat that person as as repeatable. Like I can get any other more improved model. You know, this is the whole kind of dating app mentality. You're you're looking at all these pictures. You're like, I don't like her nose. Swipe. You know, you you treat a person as a thing. To see a person is to see that person as someone indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. We live in a world that teaches us to treat people as things. And what what John Paul II is inviting us to, what, what we mean by the sacramentality of the world, is this idea that physical things point us to spiritual realities. And how do we see that? We have to ask Jesus to open our eyes because we're all blind. There is a crisis of love in the modern world, Matt, because there's a crisis of vision. As Jesus himself says, we look, but we do not see. The invitation of the gospel right out of the mouth of Jesus is come and become one who sees. Jesus wants to open our eyes to the real beauty it's all around us, all of which is meant to point us to a divine and heavenly destiny. Yeah. Um, when, Christopher, when you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, of, of seeing a person and of how, you know, purity and chastity isn't something that is like, we're not, it's not something that re- like removes like it prevents us from receiving something, you know, it's, it's something that makes us more free and we actually receive from it. But, you know, I've been in a relationship for four years now, which is crazy to think about only at 20, um, for four years with my girlfriend. Um, and there's been moments, you know, where I know, you know, that chastity and purity are, are the way to go. I know that's what the church teaches, but in my mind, I feel so restricted by it. And I know that's a flawed point of view, but I don't think I'm the only person who feels that way, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you believe in. I think most people who, you know, are in a relationship feel almost restricted. Let's talk about what we mean by freedom, right? This is so important. Jesus says the truth will make you free. What does that mean? 
I want to I want to put it this way: true freedom is not the liberty to indulge your compulsions. True freedom is freedom from the compulsion to indulge. And let me explain what what this looks like. When I was your age, Matt, I was to get what I wanted sexually from from women. And I learned how to be a professional manipulator. I learned how to push girls' buttons to get what I wanted. And I'm not proud of this in the least, but it's what the culture taught me, and I thought that's what I had to do because I had these compulsions that I couldn't control. And I remember thinking that I was free when I tossed off what I thought to be the oppressive shackles of my Catholic upbringing so I could indulge my desires whenever I wanted. And, of course, I had to convince somebody to indulge them with me so I would learn how to manipulate girls and to give me what I wanted. Well, my my Catholic conscience kicked in every once in a while. And I was in this four-year relationship with this young woman. And one Lent, I said, why don't we give up sex for Lent? And now, just as an aside, let me note that you're supposed to give up sin all the time, not just for Lent. But this this is where I was at the time of my life. And, you know, the Lord honors us where we are. He wants to bring us further along. But that's where I was. So she agreed. Well, let's give up sex for Lent. Well, guess how long I lasted, Matt? <laughs> I'm not sure, Christopher. <laughs> You're going to have to tell me. I lasted about three days. Okay. Until I was saying, you know, I don't think, well, let's think, let's give up chocolate instead. <laughs> now, what did that demonstrate to me? That demonstrated to me, Matt, that what I was calling freedom was actually slavery. I was not free to say no. And if you're no, if you cannot say no, your yes means nothing. If you cannot say no, then you you can't really say yes. You're just responding to a hormone that you cannot control. And here's another question I've asked hundreds of thousands of women around the world. I'll say, ladies, how how many of you want to be dating a guy or married to a guy who cannot say no to his sexual desires? Guess how many women have ever raised their hand, Matt? I would guess under 10, if not zero. 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 Zero women have raised their hands saying they want to be married to a man who can't say no to his desires. Why? Because they intuit immediately that if a guy cannot say no, his yes means nothing. See, this is what the culture calls sexual freedom. Do whatever you want, however you want, with whomever you want, without ever saying no. But hold on a minute. That's not a recipe for freedom That's a recipe for addiction and slavery. We have created a culture of men and women who cannot say no to their desires. I'll say it again. Sexual freedom is not the liberty to indulge your compulsions. Sexual freedom is liberation from the compulsion to indulge. Only such a person is free to be a gift. And I'll tell a story here, Matt, just to to illustrate the point, you know, we, we got to go on a long, indeed a lifelong journey to experience this freedom. The catechism says wisely that we can never consider self-mastery something we've achieved once and for all. 
It demands new stages of commitment at, at every stage of life. we got to go deeper. So I don't want to give the impression that I, I figured it out when I was 25 years old. I didn't. But there was a period from age 20 to 25 where I was going through a lot of interior purifications for the first time. And then I started dating my wife. And when we started dating, I was holding her in my arms one day. And I remembered how I used to think. I remembered how I used to behave when I would just be with a girl and I try to push your buttons to get what I wanted. And I shuddered. And I like, and, and Wendy said, whoa, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And I said, I said, Wendy, Wendy, I'm free. I have no desire whatsoever to push your buttons. <laughs> and she looked up at me and said, well, that's great. And I, I said, no, you don't understand. I don't want to use you. I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to try to get something from you. And she said, that's awesome. That's great. And I said, I just want to tell you how good you are. I just want to tell you how awesome you are. I just want to bless you. She said, that's awesome. I said, I know. It's called freedom. It's called freedom. We are called to freedom. We are called to freedom. Why do we prefer slavery? I think we prefer slavery because we don't believe that real freedom is possible. Only those who are truly free are capable of truly loving. Otherwise, we're just using one another. Chastity is the virtue. Contrary to what everybody, most everybody thinks it is. We think it's oppressive. We think it's a burden. We think it's going to rob me of what I really want. No, no, no. Chastity is the virtue that liberates us really and truly to see one another and honor one another as indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable persons made in the image and likeness of God. It frees us to experience the love we really desire, the beauty we really desire, the joy we really desire. I'm so glad that you're talking about that, um, especially, I, th- I think it was John Paul II said this, I mean figures, but he said that you, one cannot truly love until one is chaste. Correct. You know, and that's chaste in action and in thoughts and, and, and in your mind. Um, and correct, I, correct. Here, here's a great analogy. I heard this years ago and I've used it ever since. See, we think that chastity robs us of spontaneity. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I have to check everything I'm thinking. I have to check everything I'm feeling. I'm, it really throws a wet blanket on spontaneity. Can't, can't even a married couple just go for it for crying <laughs> out You know, th- we get those ideas. But here's a great analogy to explain what chastity is and what it is not. Right? Anybody can walk up to a piano keyboard and spontaneously bang on it and make meaningless noise that actually grates against the soul, right? There's some, you know, release of pent-up tension in banging on the piano. I get it, but it's meaningless noise, right? Yeah. A concert pianist can also walk up to a piano keyboard and spontaneously make the most beautiful music that lifts your heart and mind and soul and body even to the heavens but we know behind the beauty of that music is a lifetime of discipline right 
Yeah. Chastity, of course, it involves discipline, but it's a creative discipline, like the discipline of a musician or like the discipline of an athlete. You got to know for darn sure that, forgive me, I'm dating myself here, but <laughs> for, Mike, for Michael Jordan to dunk that basketball as he did, it made it look so effortless. But behind that beauty and freedom to dunk that basketball as he did from the from the foul line almost, he could leap, right? Yeah. <laughs> Is a lifetime of practice and discipline, right? It's chastity is like that. We're not all called to be a concert pianist. We're not all called to be a professional athlete. But we are, each and every one of us, we are called, you might say, to be professional lovers. To learn really what it means to love another human being. And that's the creative, exciting adventure of chastity. Learning how to love learning how to see one another, learning how freely to, to respond to the dignity of the other. I'll quote here from John Paul II in his book, Love and Responsibility. He says, chastity is not something oppressive. Rather, chastity raises all of our sexual attractions and desires and emotions to the level of the dignity of the person, freeing us to love the person rather than to use or manipulate or control the person. That's what chastity does. That's why we all need it. That's why we all long for it. Yeah. Yeah, this is actually a perfect segue into, you know, we're explaining what chastity is and what it can do for you as an individual. And, and we know it takes so much practice, just like it takes practice to become a professional pianist. So what are practical ways to attain this virtue? And yes. not just to attain it, but to experience it in a way along the process of attaining it that is yes. makes you urge for more freedom. It makes you feel free. Because there's been moments, you know, where I'm striving for chastity and it's amazing. I feel so free. Because there's been moments yes. where I've been successful, but there's been moments that were really, really hard where I've been striving for it and succeeding, but still feel so almost restricted. Um, I, I hear you. I hear you, Matt. And that's that's the tension. That's the struggle, right? Yeah. Let's, let's just go along with the analogy. Let's go back to the piano player. You, you, you might be saying to yourself, well, oh my gosh, I've been making this meaningless noise on the piano. How am I ever, I'm never going to be a Mozart. How do I ever even begin? <laughs> okay, we'll start with Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. Anybody, after a few moments of instruction, can play with one finger on three notes, Mary Had a Little Lamb. <laughs> it's not Mozart, right? But at least you're not grating against yourself anymore with meaningless noise. It's a melody. And it's it's even has a certain ring to it, right? Yeah. So you start there and you keep going. You keep going. And along the way, you're not gonna get it perfect. Think of how many times your piano teacher has to say, No, not like this, do it like this. Or 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 think of how many times your coach, if you're an athlete, has to correct your emotions or whatever, you know, there's a, there's always more to learn. There's always more to experience in terms of gaining this self mastery and freedom, but you gotta, 
you got to want it. If you don't want to be a piano player, I don't care how many lessons you take. It's going to be a miserable experience, right? What yeah. will make you want to become chaste? The beauty of it. The freedom of it. The joy of it. I say to people, start tuning your heart to beautiful things, to truly beautiful things, to things that really awaken your yearning for things that are transcendent and infinite. Go look at a starlit night. Really and truly listen to good music that lifts your hearts to the heavens. If, if, you, if you allow true beauty to stir your heart, you will realize that true beauty is worth fighting for. Help, help others to see how beautiful they are as well. When you, when you give another person their dignity, it lifts you up. It makes you want to fight for what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. See, that's what erotic desire at its best really is. It's not a selfish desire to gratify my base instincts. Eros, the Greek word, as John Paul II uses it, he, he says that Eros was given us by God as an upward impulse of the human spirit towards everything that is true, good, and beautiful. We have to call out the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of other people. And we have to hang out with other people who are committed to calling out the true, the good, and the beautiful in us. And the more you start to see the true, the good, and the beautiful in others, the more you want to uphold it. When you see how beautiful a painting is, you don't want to, you don't want to urinate on it. <laughs> you, you want to put it in a beautiful frame and put a spotlight on it so everybody can honor how beautiful it is. You don't want to destroy it. right? When you see how beautiful the human person is, you don't want to use that person as a thing. You want to love that person as someone made in the image and likeness of God. There's nothing more beautiful than the human person made in the image of God. And we got to beg Jesus to open our eyes to see that. That becomes the motivation for upholding the dignity of the person. You got to see it. You got to feel it. And when you see it, when you feel it, or to the degree that you see it, to the degree that you feel the true beauty and dignity of a person, you are going to want to fight to uphold it. That's chastity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what motivates us to do anything then, you know, our, our feelings and emotions? It's um, not a list of rules, put it that way. Yeah. If chastity is just a list of rules to follow, we're not going to follow them, right? Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I think that's just if, what if, so many so many people our age or my age, you know, in, in that like 16 to 25 range or even extends farther and younger than that. Just think of, and, and sometimes I hate to say it, but we're taught that it's almost like a list of rules. If you go to a Catholic school, it seems like to these young kids that chastity is just this rule to follow. It kills me. It kills me. It kills me. I was raised in the church in the seventies and eighties and the church I was raised in, I, I say I was raised on the starvation diet gospel. <laughs> and the basic message was this. Your desires are bad. They're only going to get you in trouble. So you need to repress all that and follow all these rules, and then you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. Well, 
that's why I became a quick convert to what I called fast food gospel when I became a teenager. <laughs> and the fast food gospel is what the culture is telling us, right? Immediate yeah. pleasure, immediate gratification. You don't have to wait for anything. Here it is. Here's what you want. And I always say, don't lie to me if the only two choices are the starvation approach or the fast food approach. I'm going for the chicken nuggets. Yeah. And don't don't lie to me. They taste really good going down. <laughs> Here's the thing. If fast food becomes your steady diet, which it did for me as a teenager, and, and I mean this in the metaphorical sense, right? Yeah. What, what, what happens if that becomes your diet? You're going to get sick. And that's a picture of me in my college years. All the grease and the sodium, so to speak, from all the fast food I had eaten caught up with me and it put me on my knees in a college dorm in 1988 saying god in heaven if you exist you better show me because uh all these desires are getting me in a heck of a lot of trouble what am i supposed to do with them yeah and long story short that that prayer led me eventually to discover christianity is not a starvation diet it's an invitation to a wedding feast yeah. And John Paul II's Theology of the Body was the first to tell me that. And he was the first to tell me that that hunger I had in my heart, I wasn't supposed to repress it. I was supposed to allow Jesus into it so it could be redeemed. Well, what the hell does that mean? Pardon my... <laughs> pardon my uh, right there. But here's what it means. Here's an image. Here's an analogy. I like to say God gave us erotic desire. To be like the fuel of a rocket that has the power to launch us to the stars. But see, here's the problem, Matt. There's an enemy who doesn't want us to reach the stars. Yeah. And with original sin, our rocket engines became inverted. That's what original sin did to the rocket engines. We're pointed in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. That's why so many of us, we're looking for love. We're looking for happiness. But our efforts backfire on us because our rocket engines are pointed in the wrong direction. Here's what I learned from John Paul II that radically changed my life. And I knew then I'd spend the rest of my life studying this theology of the body and sharing it with the world. Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines. Christ came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. Yeah. This is good news. This is good news. Doesn't matter where you've been. Whoever is out there listening to this, doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how many times you've backfired. Doesn't matter how many times you've gone to those greasy chicken nuggets to satisfy your desire that can only be satisfied by the banquet of God's love. Let Jesus into those painful experiences. Let Jesus into the memories of the first time you were exposed to porn. Let Jesus into the memories of those first sexual experiences you had. Painful memories, difficult memories. Let Jesus into where those rocket engines have been pointed in the wrong direction and say, Jesus, come and save me. Redirect my rocket engines to the stars. Show me what I'm really made for. Show me who I really am. Show me why you gave me all these desires in the first place. And he will. This is his promise. He will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out a 30-day challenge to everybody listening to this podcast right now. For the next 30 days, 
The first thing you do when you wake up is say something like this. God, if you're really there, show me why you made me the man or the woman you made me to be. Show me who I am and show me why you gave me these desires and what I'm supposed to do with them. And if in 30 days later, if you've made that prayer every day for 30 days, if you don't have new hope in your life, if you don't have a new sense that there is purpose and meaning, then uh, I'll, what do I do for you? I'll, uh, I don't know how you're going to keep track of this, Matt, but somehow figure out a way, give them your email address. <laughs> and if in 30 days something has not changed, uh, you, they can, they can, you can get in touch with me and I'm going to give them uh, some gift certificate or something. <laughs> all right. All right. Sounds good. That's my 30 day challenge. <laughs> sounds great. Um, I'll but, have to come up with something good for a little prize for those who, uh, who think, uh, nothing's changed. <laughs> no, that's a good challenge. Great challenge. Um, and, and so we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, how the way to motivate yourself for chastity is to see the beauty and the freedom that comes with it. And the only way yeah. to do that is to pray for that. So when we, you know, we can never at least for me, I never stay fully attached to the site. So what I mean by that is that I'm looking and I see the beauty and I see how amazing it is. But then somewhere down the road, my vision becomes distorted again. Yes. How do we keep, you know, that vision centered on the freedom, on the beauty? And how do we keep ourselves motivated outside of, you know, continually praying for sight? Like, are there practical prayers or practical steps to take? Yeah, you see, we, I want to come back to that question of freedom. Freedom is deeply, deeply related to our desires. Mm-hmm. Where are we aiming our desires, right? Yeah. We're only going to aim our desires at the banquet if we really believe the banquet is what we want more than the fast food. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, put it this way. If the only two choices are the fast food or the starvation approach, which one of those approaches is going to win our our freedom and our desire? Fast food. The fast food, hands down. If those are the only two choices, starve or go to the fast food, hands down, the fast food is going to win our attraction, our desire, and our freedom. But if there's something better than the fast food, If the fast food is only a cheap counterfeit for what we're really looking for, if there really, really is a banquet that corresponds to the depth of the ache and the yearning that we discover in our hearts and in our bodies, then that will win our freedom. That will win our attraction. That will win our desires. And we will, that doesn't mean we won't still have an inclination back to the fast food. That even to, even if our rocket engines are getting rightly directed, we have this thing called concupiscence. That's a fancy word for the tendency to sin, right? With this kind of gravitational pull towards sin. Or put it this way. You're driving your car, and if your alignment is off, you gotta hand, you got to hold your hands firmly on the wheel and the moment you take your hands off the wheel 
the alignment, the bad alignment takes you off the road, right? Yeah. That, that misalignment is concupiscence. We got to keep our hands on the wheel and keep steering towards the goal we really desire. Are you looking for a better way to connect with members of the CUA community? Are you behind on the university happenings? Check out SIDPOD, the podcast where your community directors share what is going on in their daily lives and talk about the important things happening in residence life and the university in general. Get the staff's perspective on things and join in the conversation with your own ideas. We're so excited to be working in collaboration with WCUA. New episodes are posted every Wednesday, so be sure to check back for new episodes every week. I'm married 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a daily commitment that this is what I really want. And it's not just a mind game. It's not like saying, well, what I really want to do is look at porn, but I'm just going to pretend I want this religious stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. The more, the more you grow in your encounter with with the things of God, the more you, the, the more they become a lived experience, the more you experience really and truly the sacraments as the foreshadowing of heaven that they really are, the more you know that that is what you want. I encourage everybody out there to Google this. Make sure you Google it just as I say it, because if you mistype this, you could go somewhere you don't want to go. Uh, I want you to type into Google the ecstasy of St. Teresa of Avila. Make sure all of those words are in there. The ecstasy of St. Teresa of Avila. And I want you to look at this gorgeous statue by Bernini. It's in a church outside of Rome of Teresa of Avila in prayer experiencing these sweet ecstasies. She said that this angel of fire showed up to her in prayer and thrust an arrow of love so deeply into her heart that it made her moan with sweet agonies and ecstasies. And she said, I knew when this experience of love pierced my heart that there is nothing in this world that could possibly satisfy my desire. And she said, if you don't believe me, I beg you to ask God for the same experience. The love of God is far, far, far more beautiful, far more compelling, far more attractive, far more desirable than any finite pleasure that there possibly could be dished out for us. We are made for so much more than the world is holding out to us. So we got we to gotta see how attractive it is. That will win our freedom. That will win our desire. But to do that, we got to learn how to pray. And here I'm quoting from the fathers of the church who say, Prayer is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. And it's called Eros. As Pope Benedict XVI said, Eros is our longing for God. When we aim our desire for the infinite, at finite pleasures, we don't experience liberation, we don't experience fulfillment, we experience addiction. Because finite pleasures can never satisfy our desire for the infinite. 
you go and you get that little pleasure. It satisfies a little bit, gives you a little taste, but then you need more. You go and you get more, gives you a little bit, but then you need more. And you go and you get more and you go and you get more. That is not a road to happiness. That is a road of addiction. The invitation is to learn how to open our yearning for the infinite to the infinite. Or to use my previous image, the goal is to learn how to direct our rocket engines towards the stars so that we can launch and not backfire so that we can launch and experience the joy for which we're really made. This is the promise of the gospel. There is a banquet that corresponds to the hunger, but we got to wait for it. We got to be willing. I'm, I'm quoting Hamilton here. I realize <laughs> we got to be willing to wait for it. We got to be willing to wait for the joy that is ours. And then, you know what we, you know what we experience, Matt? The very things in this world that maybe at one time in our lives were occasions of sin, these things become occasions of grace because God made all these pleasures to lead us to him. Mm -hmm. And the more our rocket engines are aimed at the stars, the more we're able to see that maybe I used to idolize alcohol. Maybe I used to idolize physical beauty. But now I come to see a good beer as a little taste of heaven, a little small s sacrament, right? Yeah. The iconography of the world is restored. We start to see God in everything. And especially, and I'm coming full circle here to what you said earlier about the road to Emmaus. We come to see him especially in the breaking of the bread at the pinnacle at the source and summit of everything we believe as Catholics is the body of the bridegroom given up for his bride. That's what the Eucharist is. The Eucharist is the consummation of the mystical marriage of Christ and the church. And the whole reason God created us male and female is to be a sign here on planet Earth, St. Paul tells us, of the eternal union that awaits us in heaven. Do you know why God made sex so pleasurable? Do you know what it's supposed to be? The pleasure of the two becoming one flesh is meant to be a little, 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 little glimmer of the eternal joy and ecstasy that awaits us in heaven. That's what God created it to be. Do you know what all the sexual confusion in the world is? Do you know what all the sexual confusion in our own hearts, do you know what it is? It's the human desire for heaven gone berserk yeah here's the good news christ came into the world to unberserk it <laughs> but we got to let him into what's been berserked so he can unberserk it it's called salvation and it's good news yeah i i just have to say this you know sight and persevering in prayer for the sight and the, and the knowledge of how free we can be and how happy we can be I think is made so much easier through Mary. And I, I, I know JP too, you know, he said, you know, chastity and the, or impurity and the rosary cannot coexist. Either yes. you stop one or the other. And I think it's just, but, but here we got to understand what the rosary really is. It's not yeah. this drop boring road prayer Yeah, it, it, where you say a million Hail Marys until you're done and then you can go have fun again. <laughs> 
what is the rose? The very word rosary means rose garden. Mary's mystery is like a rose garden. And we, we need how to we need to learn how to stop and smell the flowers. What do the saints and the visionaries smell when Mary shows up? Roses. They, roses. Why? Why? Because she's the mystical rose. What does this mean? Okay, I'm going to give you a little lesson in how to see the world sacramentally. What is a rose? What is a flower? It's one of nature's most beautiful reproductive organs. That's what it is. The whole of the visible creation, everything living, everything that breathes, everything that grows, whether it's a blade of grass or a, or a, a, a giraffe, Everything that lives and breathes and moves and grows is, is a sign that God is life-giving love. Fertility, nature's fertility, all of it is a sign that God is life-giving love. What is a flower? It's nature's reproductive organs, one of the most beautiful. Who is Mary? Mary is the culminating mystery of all of creation. She is the fertile paradise She's the new Eden. She's the new garden. And what came forth from her soil? The second person of the Trinity came forth from the garden that is Mary's womb. So let me put it this way, and this is very important. In all truth, Mary doesn't smell like roses. Roses smell like Mary. <laughs> yeah. She's not trying to imitate the lower creatures. The lower creatures are trying to imitate her. Wow. She is the fulfillment of nature's fertility. And guess what we do at the Mass? At the Mass, we put nature's fertility on the altar. Bread, bread, bread is the crushed seed of the flowering wheat plant. Yeah. Wine comes from, wine comes from the ovary of the flowering grapevine. We put these on the altar and we pray for the spiritual dewfall to come from heaven, right? What allowed those flowers to grow and to reproduce? The dewfall is critical in nature's fertility. But here the priest prays for supernatural dewfall. Let the Holy Spirit come upon the fertility of the earth here like, like dewfall, right? Let the yeah. dewfall from heaven come down. And what happens at the altar? Nature's fertility becomes the fertility of Mary's womb. Yeah. Wow. This is our faith. When we go to Mass, we're not only experiencing the representation of what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we go to Mass, it's like we're in the womb of Mary when Christ is conceived. Yeah. The whole mystery of our faith is because of the fertility of a woman who opened her body to God, the eternal bridegroom. This is why St. Augustine called Mary's womb the bridal chamber where the marriage of heaven and earth is consummated. See, our bodies, Matt, are meant to tell that divine story. What divine story? God wants to marry us. That's the whole Bible in five words. God wants to marry us but there's more not only does god love us not only does he want to marry us what did we learn in second grade 
First comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes the baby in the baby carriage. What we didn't realize is we were reciting some profound theology. <laughs> See, God loves us. He wants to marry us. And he wants the bride to conceive eternal life within her. This is not just a metaphor, Matt. There really was and truly a, a woman who said yes to God's marriage proposal with such fidelity and totality that she literally conceived eternal life in her womb. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. This is our faith. This is why our bodies are not only biological, our bodies are theological. Because sperm and egg, male and female, tell this story. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Especially when you mention that, you know, roses are imitating Mary. Mary's not imitating yeah. the smell of roses. I've, I've never I've never heard that before. That is amazing. Um, and I think we're coming to the you know, 50 minute hour mark right now. So is there any closing remarks, any, you know, inclinations or urges or, or convincing that you would like to do just to have people at the very least pursue sight, let alone chastity, but pursue the sight that Christ can give us? Well, the two go hand in hand. Sight is chastity yeah. and chastity is sight. Blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. Where yeah. will they see him? Everywhere. And especially they'll see him in the mystery of human sexuality. So, I mean, in closing, I would say, anybody listening out there, if, if you have not exposed yourself to John Paul II's theology of the body, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your life. You owe it to your past. You owe it to your present. And you owe it to your future. Whether you get married or you have some other calling on your life, you owe it to yourself. To know the gift that God has given us at this time. We are in a crisis. I don't think I need to convince anybody of that. We're in a crisis. But for such a time as this, have we been given John Paul II's theology of the body. And the nature of the crisis, it's a sexual crisis. We don't even know what it means to be male and female anymore. And we've all been wounded here. We've all been affected here. We've all been warped. And the wound in the body of Christ needs to be healed. John Paul II's theology of the body is the holy oil for that wound in our lives. So I urge you, please, please expose yourself to it. If you like my approach, I've written tons of books. You might want to start with The Good News About Sex and Marriage. It's a Q&A book. Uh, if you want to go to Theology of the Body for Beginners, that's another place you can start. I have a book called Fill These Hearts, God, Sex, and the Universal Longing that talks about those three approaches, the starvation approach, the fast food approach, and the banquet approach. Just ex start exposing yourself. My wife and I do a podcast. It's called the Ask Christopher West Show, and people send in their questions, and we answer them. We've, we've done about 100 episodes so far. You can start listening to those, uh, and if you really want to go for it, I'd invite you to come to one of these five-day courses I teach here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we're also starting to offer them online. So you can look into that. Where can you learn more? Go to theologyofthebody.com and start clicking around and start learning what's, what's out there. Amazing. Amazing. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk to us. 
Um, your witness is unbelievable, um, and we really appreciate you coming on. The Lord has done great things for me, Matt. Holy is his name. And Chris, do you mind uh, closing us in prayer? Happily. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for making us male and female in your image and likeness. Lord, you know all the ways we've been hurt and wounded by the message of this culture, by the lies we've been told. We ask you please to open our eyes to who we really are. You know where our wounds are. You know where our fears are, Lord. Come pour your healing oil on our wounds and show us the way forward. Show us the way to live in the freedom for which you have set us free. We place all these intentions in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary where all good things are conceived and brought to birth. And we ask them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Christopher. God bless you, Matt. This is amazing. Thank you, everyone, for listening to that great conversation between Matt and Christopher West. We are very grateful that he was willing to come on and speak with us and share his faith story and his view of, of, of his relationship with Christ with you. Um, it's a beautiful testament to his story, um, and that is, the, that, is what we're, that is our mission, to tell the faith stories of others and to be able to sit down and have an honest conversation of faith and hope and love. And I think that's what was accomplished today. I want to thank Matt. I want to thank Christopher West. Um, and I want to thank you for tuning and listening. Uh, for, if you want to learn more about Theology of the Body and John Paul II's um, documents and, and view of that, um, check out CUA's Redefined Club uh, through Campus Ministry. It's a group um, run by President J.T. Parker. And you can also reach out to Father Lewis um, for any questions. So that's Redefined. It's from CUA Campus Ministry. Um, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Stained Glass Stories. We'll be excited to be back with you next week to tell more great faith stories of the relationships and encounters with Christ. Thanks so much.